Welcome to the Think Factory Podcast. We got one question for you. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to Women's Roundtable Podcast, powered by the Think Factory, where we learn how women think big and grow their business. My name is Susan Kleiner. I'm with Outside General Counsel Solutions, and I'm the host of today's episode. I'm happy to have with me today Deborah Wentz. She has a PhD, so she's Dr. Wentz, and she's the President and Chief Executive Officer of the New Jersey Association of Mental Health and Addiction Agencies, which we call NAJAMA, and also Executive Director of its 501c3, the New Jersey Mental Health Institute. Najama represents 164 behavioral health care provider organizations and serves more than 500,000 children and adults annually. Dr. Wentz holds numerous board and committee positions and appointments on the state and national level, including at the National Council for Behavioral Health, the New Jersey Governor's Council on Mental Health Stigma. She served on Governor Phil Murphy's Health Advisory Transition Committee and on the transition teams of other previous governors. Under Dr. Wentz's leadership, Najama received the Advocacy Leadership Award for Organizational Excellence from the National Council for Behavioral Health in June 2020. In 2019, Dr. Wentz was recognized by ROINJ with the Champions of the C-Suite CEOs of the Year Award and by NJ Biz with an Icon Honors Award. A sought-after expert on mental health and substance abuse issues for media and conferences, Dr. Wentz has been interviewed frequently on local, state, national, and even international television and radio programs and is regularly cited and featured in print publications. Dr. Wentz earned a doctoral degree from the University of Paris, France, a second Ph.D. and master's degree from the University of Connecticut, and an executive MBA from the Alternative Careers Program of the Wharton Business School, University of Pennsylvania. She completed undergraduate work at Goucher College, Maryland, and she is bilingual in French and English. Wow, that is quite a bio. So we are so happy to have Dr. Wentz with us today. Thank you for your time. You know, you and I have talked before, and and I just thought you had this incredible story of your leadership um, and about, you know, Najama. Now, so you've been with Najama since its inception, and I would love for you to tell our audience just a little bit about, like, how, you know, with a with a very diverse career, how you ended up there. Like, what happened? So, well, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today, Susan. Um, actually, I had not been with Najama since its inception. Najama um, was started in 1951, and we, a few years ago, obviously, in 19, uh, in 2021, celebrated our uh, 70th anniversary. But I have been with Najama for 28 and a half years, November 1st. And, uh, it was, uh, totally by chance, maybe by luck, I could say, that I ended up at Najama, um, as many of my career, uh, positions have been. Um, as you noted in my background, that my academic studies had really prepared me mostly to be a graduate professor of French language and literature, and specifically in the 19th century, so <laughs> very focused. <laughs> My professional career went in other directions, um, you know, starting from working in a public relations and advertising agency uh, right out of college, uh, you know, working in uh startup companies for biotech uh companies in the early 1980s um I found myself working for a worldwide management consulting firm doing intangible asset valuation and I led a um 
Department of Planning and Intergovernmental Affairs at a housing mortgage finance agency and had some other uh, career forays. So how I actually ended up at this position, which I, I think feels like it was made for me, but I did not plan. It was not planful. At the time, I was uh, working in New York for a um provider of addiction treatment services, and I was doing mainly, this is at the end of the 90s, um, national health care reform because I really was finding it too confining to just um, concentrate on my sort of public relations and business development um, activities there. So I got involved in national health care reform. But we had very severe winters um, during that time period. And uh, as a result, although maybe not as far as one would think in mileage distance, I was commuting with public transportation. It was taking me five hours to get to work because of uh you know all the connections and and the weather so i ended up sleeping in my office which at some point i'm hoping in retirement to write a book called exiled on 57th street <laughs> about life after hours in midtown manhattan but i started applying to positions i wanted to be back in new jersey and i um I really didn't have an aspiration to be a president or a CEO, but I was looking at position openings. Um, you know, in those days, they, it wasn't all online. You sort of, you got your copy of your Wall Street Journal and New York Times and other classified ads. And I looked at skill sets that I thought I had that were transferable. So I had applied to the New Jersey Association of Mental Health and Addiction Agencies and um I was hired and I was no one was more surprised than I was because at the time to my knowledge I had I did not know anyone um in my immediate uh life who had had a mental health um diagnosis, although later I found out that they did. It's because of stigma and discrimination that they weren't um talking. And so I was surprised and I guess what my there was a ten person search committee and what they said is um when I questioned why why they hired me, uh they said we among ourselves have hundreds if not thousands of years in aggregate of mental health expertise and you will learn you can um with your like marketing background communication skills you will be able to position the issues and that's what I've done in terms of um I promise to uh make the organization visible to increase its revenues and to get access to the highest levels of government to be able to influence those issues. And I believe that um, I have accomplished that and, and more. And it, it's been um, so, again, it was very serendipity that I arrived in my position. But uh, 28 and a half years have flown by. I'm still here. My expertise prior to that had more or less been, you know, going in doing a startup or and once it was running smoothly it became less challenging to me so then I would move on but I I haven't had that um desire because I don't even have time to think about it yeah I bet I mean so it's really interesting to me that you looked looked at this job description or the classified ads and you looked at skills versus like you know the the substance or something else and um, I just love to hear that you you pushed yourself. I mean, I know that I've read studies about the fact that women, you know, constantly undervalue themselves, you know, and they don't always make the leap like they could for these positions because women are more likely to think, oh, I'm not qualified for that. So, like, how great is that, that, like, you're a living example of, yeah, you are qualified, you know, and you should go for it. Um, so, uh We've talked some, I mean, and this kind of gets to the same point or similar about how important it is to have your own personal vision and mission. 
like you, you, you told me that, that you felt like that was so important for you and your career. Obviously, your organization also has this fantastic vision, vision. But can you tell me what you meant by that, by how important it is to have your own personal vision and mission? Well, for me, in this particular organization, um, obviously, we're in what is known as the helping profession. So those, while I don't directly deliver mental health or substance use uh, treatment services, the organizations that I represent provide both um, treatment and supports to those individuals. But I've always been, uh, in fact, I characterize myself as a closet social worker since childhood. I always wanted to help people. And I, even as a child, I would bring children that I uh, perceived as having a lot less than I did home and then, you know, open up my closet and and toys and offer it to them and insist that they take them with them. Um, so I think that that was pretty ingrained and it does align with our mission. I, I've always also been intrigued, fascinated and delighted by multiple cultures and people with different backgrounds uh, from, you know, whether it was linguistic, uh, cultural, uh, you know, racial. And so um, that interest of mine, which probably led to my degrees in French, and that's where it's transferable back into healthcare and health equity, um, is uh so that also aligned um with the mission and then um th- this has always evolved and i've been open to various kinds of position but i really became much more focused on this aspect um through my work at uh Najama as we're called and the New Jersey Mental Health Institute and i like to think of my mission is changing the world one person at a time and to do it systemically in the healthcare field. For sure. So it's interesting that you talk about, you know, like your your mission and vision and then also, you know, your your interest in um, you know, culture and uh you know, cross-cultural stuff and and maybe that's why it's not a surprise. Uh, with your work and organization of the Sri Lankan Mental Health Relief Project, which I read a little bit about, uh, which is truly just a fascinating story. So would you mind sharing with our listeners um, how that all came about? Yes. Um, it's so, again, uh, maybe a series of serendipity and luck, uh, good luck, uh for in in terms of this project. So in um December 2004, I was traveling um to Sri Lanka um for to participate in a family member's wedding and um the day after I arrived um in the morning uh, as I was traveling south to a uh, city to visit, the Southeast Asian tsunami took place. And um, so, uh, you know, given that I was fortunate enough to survive, and it was extremely traumatic, obviously, to see so much death in um, Southeast Asia that day, in excess of um, 250,000 people lost their lives in Sri Lanka alone. It was somewhere between 32,000 and 36,000 people were swept away and drowned and lost. And there was economic loss and, you know, loss of life and loss of, you know, some people were traumatized and have never recovered. So I felt that it was um it was a sign to me almost that I had to get back and do something. So I quickly went into overdrive mode. I contacted TV stations to provide some guidelines for even, you know, tra- dealing with the emotional and mental health impact. Of course, 
in the initial hours, people were just, you know, the immediate they were looking for, you know, relatives and some of the survival. But we knew that the long-term effects of mental health and mental trauma would endure as they do after natural and man-made disasters. So I um, initially just, uh, I had created, in, when I started at uh, Najama, a pharmaceutical advisory council. Today it's our Life Sciences and Innovation Council. But I quickly contacted our companies who sent the appropriate kinds of um, medical aid and and supplies that were needed, um, as did our members. And I got in touch, too, with my the board of our New Jersey Mental Health Institute, and we started developing how we were going to offer a project to um, to help. So we did. We put together a curriculum and we trained um, in for six days of training, two locations, some with professionals like physicians and um, HR company heads and social workers and religious leaders and then others, volunteers in people were living in camps because their housing and businesses had been destroyed. So we had training there. So we trained 106 people in a train-the-trainer for recognizing the signs and symptoms of mental health, um, and it would be substance use problems to treat the depression and anxiety. And we impacted from the evaluations over 200,000 people. Then we wanted to continue it. We, we offered this trilingually in Hindi, Sinhala, and English. Um, and then we, based on the evaluations, we were set to offer a second round of training, but it became dangerous at that point. There was civil unrest and we could not, um, in good faith send, you know, um, our trainers and cultural ambassadors back there at that point. So we created and distributed trilingual brochures, which we had distributed on recognizing the signs and symptoms of, um, mental illness illness and substance use of, uh, and we did this in a culturally competent kind of context and again trilingually. And then we, in the, for the first project, we had partnered with a, um, non-governmental organization that was local because that was important in terms of, um, reaching into the population. And then we had a third project, um, where we trained people in rural areas who had no resources or physicians or clinicians in, in mental health, but we broadened it to include other issues like um, domestic violence, poverty, other economic factors, women who lacked um, independence and education. And we provided them with toolkits for um, which they then took back to their various areas. So there was a lot of logistics. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, cultural differences that we overcame. But we did, um, and, and that particular project impacted about 1,500 families. Um, and uh, so so we were proud. We I feel that when something happens, New Jersey, where I reside and where uh, obviously our uh, you know, organization and institute our, um, our house. We, we are such a diverse population here and it makes us feel like a global part citizen, citizen of the world. And when something happens, there's always a New Jersey connection, but there's a world connection. So we were very happy to contribute to, um, this effort and we've, um, established ties that are enduring and we're, we still stay in touch. What an amazing example of being a global citizen and, you know, taking action, you know, on a, and, and, and marshalling these resources and other people, um, you know, truly amazing and, you know, a testament to your character and your leadership. Um, I just wanted to turn, I mean, to uh, something that I mentioned uh, in in your bio, 
when I think about mental health issues, I think one of the biggest problems, and, and maybe this has changed over the years, and I'm curious to hear from you about it, you know, has to do with stigma. And I know that you chair the New Jersey Governor's Council on Mental Health Stigma, which was reconvened in January 2022 with what it said on the Internet, a renewed sense of vigor. So can you tell me some more about the work of the council and, you know, how, you know, why it was reconvened and, um, you know, what you see as, uh, you know, the issues with stigma and how it's changing? Yes, um, it's, it's one of my passions, so I'm happy to talk about this. Well, the council was actually created in um, 2005 through an executive order by then uh, acting Governor Richard Cody, um, whose number one issue was mental health. And this uh, stigma council, um, I've been a member since its inception, and I do see changes over the years. You know, stigma probably is the greatest barrier to people getting help. Because when stigma doesn't exist, individuals are much more likely to receive the support they need and to recognize the possibilities in their life and then to work to make them realities. And through educational programs in communities, schools, and other settings, um, we can make a life changing impact. So I want to just say that stigma hurts everyone living with a mental illness along with their families, friends, colleagues, and the communities they live in because it is that uh, such a primary barrier to the achievement of wellness and recovery as well as full social integration. And it can appear to others is distrust, fear, stereotyping, and discrimination. Um, and this type of discrimination that's associated with mental health stigma presents many challenges for people with mental illness. And for example, it's too often difficult, if not impossible, for individuals with mental illness to secure housing and um, employment. And so when I entered the mental health field in 1995, I was immediately struck how stigmatized mental illness was. And I felt, um, you know, uh, that I should, again, take action. So at that point, I put together a campaign called Mugshots, where I featured famous people like Abraham Lincoln, Beethoven, um, you know, and others who had uh, mental illnesses and I did this in a very high impact way and uh, I uh, was able to get a public relations firm uh, to donate pro bono services and that campaign ran for about three years and it would appear like on CBS top of the hour news it, it was just amazing but Together, over the years, there there has been um, change in the field. Um, and, uh, for example, work that the council uh, is doing um, to make further strides towards eradicating stigma. Um, over the years, we had a series of ambassador award programs where we would highlight a particular sector. Business was one. Teachers and education was one. Religious leaders was one. There were others. And we would highlight the work that people were doing to um, overcome stigma. Currently, we're involved in a learning, um, a, a stigma-free zone learning collaborative where um, we acknowledge and showcase ambassadors and communities that have successfully established stigma-free zones. And participation in this group um, helps access to resources, uh, toolkits, and community organizing strategies for successfully implementing and sustaining stigma-free zones. We also had a um, very interesting activity, which was a mental health roundtable featuring very well-known um, 
person, Dr. Otto Wall, who is a professor emeritus at the University of uh, Hartford and author of a of Media Madness, Public Images of Mental Illness. And um, we invited other mental health stakeholders and news reporters. We did this in October of 2022. And our goal was to educate members of the media to actually to accurately portray people with mental illness without perpetuating uh, negative stereotypes and instead to educate with facts so that stigma can be overcome. We just recently unveiled an updated website and a biannual newsletter, Stopping Stigma, um, and, you know, where we feature the council's members and initiatives. Um, and on our website, it's very important, we have um, a section where uh, people can share their experience of overcoming the challenges that com- commonly occur with mental illness and the successes achieved as a result. And telling stories is one of the most compelling ways to eliminate stigma and showing that it can be done. Um, so d- despite you asked me, is it changing? So yes, progress has been made uh, today. I mean, you can't pick up uh, come into contact with any kind of media, whether it's print or or TV or radio or social media, without seeing the discussion of mental um, illness and uh, and substance use disorders. But so, ta- first of all, just educating people and uh, unfortunate, like a good byproduct of some unfortunate incidents, like. The tsunami, you know, and uh, other natural disasters, the Haitian earthquake, 9-11, which was a man-made disaster, wars, is that it normalizes at least some of the mental illnesses like anxiety and depression because so many people are affected and talking about it. So that helps to, in some way, um make it seem more normal and is is a door to opening it. But when I came into the field, um, you know, there was a, a National Alliance for Mental Illness, NAMI campaign, focused only on the brain, on the biology of mental illness. In fact, I remember they called the 1990s the decade of the brain. And But this perspective on mental illness has evolved over the years with the passage of very positive state and um, federal laws, you know, and I I could go into them in detail, but um, probably the most um, overarching one, although we're still (laughs) fighting for comprehensive um, implementation, would be the 2008 um, Dominici and Wellstone law that required that carriers provide coverage for um expenses incurred by an individual um you know uh and both who have serious mental illnesses as well as um this is state law diagnosed with autism for medically necessary treatments and also developmental disability that that was a 2008 New Jersey law there had been a previous one in 1999 that required all health insurance carrier policies and contracts issued, executed, or renewed in New Jersey um, that provided hospital or medical expense benefits or service to also provide coverage for biologically based illness under the same terms and conditions as any other sickness under the policy. And then... um in 2017, uh, as a precursor to what went became more expansive under COVID, New Jersey had adopted regulations uh, requiring private insurers to cover telemental and telehealth services to the same extent that they cover in-person services as long as the telemedicine provider met the same standard of care as an in-person provider. And finally, in 2019, which is something that we had been 
working at for a long time is that um was a New Jersey law that enhanced enforcement of mental health parity laws by improving transparency and accountability related to the insurance coverage of mental health and substance use treatment disorders for New Jersey residents. So while this was happening, though, in New Jersey, at the federal level, there also was this evolution. So in 1996, the Mental Health Parity Act of, of 1996, had provided that large group health plans cannot impose any uh, annual or lifetime dollar limits on mental health benefits that are less favorable than any such limits imposed on medical and surgical benefits. And I'm I'm sorry because earlier I guess I had jumped to the um, 2008. I was looking at 2008 for uh, in New Jersey, but this is 2008. The federal Paul Wellstone and Pete Domenici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Act of 2008, which which preserves the protections um, from the 1996 Act and added significant new protections, such as extending the parity requirements to substance use disorders, which was huge. And although the law requires a general equivalence in the way that mental health and substance use disorders and medical surgical benefits are treated um, with respect to annual and lifetime dollar limits, financial requirements, and treatment limitations. This bill did not require large group health plans or health insurance issues to cover mental health or substance use benefits. The law requirements only applied to large group health plans and health insurance that chose to include those benefits in their benefit um, packages. So then the next step, because the reason why I'm talking about, by the way, the um, the the intricacies of this legislation, the greatest stigma and discrimination against mental illness is not covering the cost of its treatment as you would another disease when this clearly these are clearly diseases. So the finally, the affordable the CARE Act of 2010 provided one of the largest expansions of mental health and substance use disorder coverage in a generation and required coverage for 10 essential health benefit uh, categories, including mental health and substance use services at parity with um, medical and surgical benefits. And finally, the current legislation, which has not um, passed yet, but the Mental Health Parity Act of 2023 proposes amendments to regulations that implement um, the uh, 2008 Act and proposes new regulations implementing the non-quantitative treatment um, limitation comparative analysis requirements um, as amended by the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. And so that would um, prevent uh, existing uh, uh, the, uh, plans and issuers from not using the, the um, non-quantitative elements um, as, as a uh, as an impediment to allowing people to access mental health and substance use. But despite all these regulations, and that's why we have to sort of police the implementation, like like with all change, it really has to be, stigma has to be internalized as, right. as part of somebody's individual belief system. Sometimes people will say, maybe in public or certain, you know, uh, forms that they're on the right side of the issue, but they might say something else behind closed doors. I, and again, I think when I referenced to 9-11, this really was a big change because a lot of the primary and secondary trauma from the attacks and the loss of um, life, um, you know, so of course there was widespread anxiety, widespread depression. It did um, normalize it and the media was focusing much more on the issues and this increased awareness, which helped to chip away at stigma. 
that said, um, we still need a lot of education yeah. to to build awareness and understanding, and we're far from having like you know really uh you know being able to declare full full success on that front so um the it's very rewarding to be to work with my colleagues on the governor's council of mental health stigma and others that we um you know engage in our subcommittees and events to change that yeah well i mean thank you so much for your work on that i mean and i think that like what i heard from what you were saying you know, it, it, it's not just the media, which we touched upon, you know, and media portrayal of mental health conditions. I mean, that's one serious issue. The other thing is, you know, being able to talk about it, about mental health and, and mental wellness in the media, um, you know, but but dealing with some of these other, um, you know, issues, you know, that affect the care and treatment, like the insurance and insurance parity. I'm sure your group is also working on like, well, how do employers deal with it? Like, you know, how do how do people get paid? I know it's much different here in the United States than it is in some other countries regarding the the care and treatment of uh, mental health. So we have a ways to go. Uh, I, I think it's also really helpful in listening to you on your website. You talked about how people share their own stories. And maybe that's one of the best ways that stigma changes is when people share, you know, from the heart about their own um, you know, suffering or, you know, uh, dealing with, you know, where, where we talk about, you know, dealing with mental health or mental wellness, um, and we're, we're not afraid to share. So thank you so much for your work on that. It sounds like, you know, well, we have so much more to do, but it sounds like we have made strides, particularly on the regulatory level, which I think people aren't always thinking about. So thanks for sharing about that. It was really, um, enlightening. But when I think about mental um, health issues, you know, obviously, uh, you know, other than everything that's happening in the world right now, but what's on the forefront of people's minds, or at least on my mind, when I think of mental health and how things have changed, I think about the pandemic and um, how the pandemic uh, changed, you know, how we view mental health, but also made significant changes with, um you know, the mental health profession. So I know that you mentioned um, one of the regulatory changes, I guess, that happened pre-pandemic had to do with telehealth. But certainly during the pandemic, I think people found it a lot easier, hopefully, to access mental health treatment through uh, the phone or Internet. Um, I'm just curious, from your perspective, you know, how did the pandemic change, you know, your field? Um, you know, what was it like trying to support your members during this difficult time period? Well, yes, <laughs> the pandemic within a week's time, we had all of our members had gone from, uh, you know, some some continued in-person services just due to the nature of their per- services, like a residential provider or a hospital. But many, many um, went to uh telehealth and uh both state and federal waivers which normally were, did not allow um payment for treatment by telehealth did but um first of all obviously the entire world was anxious depressed hypersensitive it was um in the start of 2020 in fact i, I and I, I don't I, I feel that we're still um, while they've declared the pandemic over and you see people behaving differently. It really is not. It's still there. So it, it was 24 um, seven nonstop. And in terms of our membership, um we provided services, I would say, almost 24, uh, seven. There had been tremendous demand, um, on the field, uh, you know, and that demand is continuing. But immediately, first of all, people were afraid. We had people, many among our membership and colleagues, uh, throughout the field, there were people who had COVID. There were deaths of staff, um, deaths in, in, you know, clients. Um, the state was, um, and, and federal government were trying to manage too. There were 
different regulations that came out, you know, whether it was vaccines of healthcare workers, whether it was um, personal protective equipment. And we had a quite a fight there because um, while in they gave lip service to the fact that those who delivered mental health care, you know, needed uh, PPE, as it was called. Most of it went to like hospitals and health care facilities. Yet our uh, staff and clients, I mean, they were face to face. They had, uh, you know, they they were getting ill and they were not like priority for getting PPE. So we had to, you know, work with outside vendors. We um we did advocacy. Then there was the entire um issue of, you know, vaccines and healthcare workers and we did fall under healthcare workers and who had to get vaccines. And then at one point in New Jersey, you know, if people were not vaccinated they were in the healthcare arena they weren't allowed to keep their jobs by like state executive order so there was changing regulations in terms of who could deliver care there was staff a lot of stress uh and staff burnout that we've never seen before these were people on the front lines who saw people um you know sick dying their emotional impact. They had their own families. Many people, healthcare workers, some, you know, had to go face to face. Those who were at home, though, they had caretaking from children who were not in school. They had often elderly parents or other family members. Um, and then they had, because some people just were not resilient and decided, I don't want to expose myself. I don't want to expose my family. Um, so they left the field or they um, were so anxious that they would make someone ill in the field. So while this field was always difficult to attract and retain people due to the lower remuneration compared to alternative type of careers that people could go into, it hit its peak because those who remained were picking up bigger workloads. To this day, it's very difficult to recruit and retain um, staff in this field because, uh, for example, in New Jersey, we and, and nationally, they've been going towards a minimum wage Often there's not much of a difference between a minimum wage and a master's level clinical person. Um, so while salaries have been slow to increase, there have been some in the past couple years, but it didn't um, fill that gap from, I, I think, the last COLA until uh, two until last year that our members had was in January of 2008. So, you know, many of them had like flat salaries. So also it became um people had other opportunities. They could leave organizations. They didn't have to go back face to face in the field, could work their own hours. So they decided to go into private practice. Others had you know, retail was suddenly paying, you know, being working in McDonald's or being a manager, you could make more money than in our field, have a, not have the same kind of anxiety. So this is ongoing. And so we held a series of roundtables. We brought in experts. We brought in people on self-care Um this goes on to this day. There's not a day that you don't hear about workforce burnout and stress and, you know, what the field will do. You know, so there are various measures. There's creating a pipeline, but that takes a long time. There's using other people's to the top, you know, other people to the top of their skill level and profession. So we, we see that in the physical health realm when we go to the ER. Used to be and well, I guess maybe I'm dating myself. It used to be you go there and your own doctor would, you know, you're in the hospital and or in the ER and your own doctor comes by and, you know, checks in on you. Today, they have physician's assistants. They have, uh, you know, 
uh, advanced practice nurses, um, and then fewer doctors. But so in our field, it's a little bit the same. So, but during the pandemic itself, it was both exhausting and exhilarating. Our staff never felt more needed than during that time. Um, and we answered questions constantly about regulations, other rules, policies. As I said, we advocated for the personal protective equipment. Um, more members really developed a greater appreciation for what we offered and how responsive we were and we always are responsive you know that that's one thing in terms of leadership when they say it starts at the top I've always insisted on excellent internal and external customer service so to speak that you know in a service organization because we're not delivering a commodity and we're not a we're not delivering health care all that we really do deliver is being responsive, you know, to with the services. And um, we feel this is a long-term impact on workforce is one of the major issues that we're um, working on. And they're, um, you know, so we are facing the field, a shortage of workers and a shortage of pipeline. And, um it, it just is difficult to recruit and retrain. But what we did do to address this, we had in our advocacy, we had um, in the current fiscal year 2024 budget and the New Jersey state budget runs from July 1, 2023 to June 30th, 2024. There is an increase of $27 million in state funds, which is being matched by $10.5 million in federal funds for increases to rates and contracts. And this is in addition to the fiscal year 2023 increase, uh, combined increase of $39 million that was incorporated into the base for wages and other deficits. And in this year's budget, we, there's also a one-time, which is major, 867 $5 million investment through the Department of Human Services to shore up the workforce that holds the system of home and community-based services. So specifically what that means was there's $25 million for a loan redemption programs for mental health and substance use, as well as applied behavioral analysts and private duty nurses. There's up to $60 million. These are one-time funds, but they will help for recruitment, retention, and training for mental health, substance use, and intellectual developmental disability professionals. There's um, funding for free certification for peers and community health workers. There was $40 million to increase social service provider payments within the Department of Children and Families, including rates in uh, child protection clinical services and the children's system of care, and uh, $36 million to increase the rates paid to service providers for residential, uh, for residents with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And uh, of note, with we hear so much about school, the, um, you know, mental health crisis in school and in youth, there is $43 million of, for the inaugural uh, year of the New Jersey Statewide Support Services Network, um, which consists of 15 regional hubs that provide prevention and brief intervention services to New Jersey public uh, school students, parents, caretakers, and um the school facility and and of note too for children in the fiscal year 2023 budget there was a 108 million dollar recurring funding for increases to uh, the department of children and families children of system of care rates so this funding why it sounds huge it's a huge system <laughs> that treats so many it's a lot i was just listening to all your numbers i should have added it up with a little tape you know that was a lot of money, but go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, but so this funding begins to help remedy the situation, but it's ongoing. And we're concerned because, you know, 
priorities sometimes change and people changed a lot of their priorities and what they want and they left the sector of healthcare for other industries. So all of this really just, you know, it, we're, we're working constantly to, to maintain it. But yes, and the other thing that we're working very hard is to make permanent some of the use of telehealth where they broadened its use because that really increased access for a lot of people. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, New Jersey, I mean, your organization, you know, thanks to the hard work of you and your organization, I mean, I think that New Jersey is better uh, for it. And we're, you know, grateful, you know, for all your hard work. I mean, it just it sounds amazing. Um, I'm curious, uh, looking back, you know, what is one piece of advice uh, that you would give your younger self? Well, um, you know, I, I would advise my younger self to have more confidence. People who know me today, um, I know I may quickly make decisions and can pretty much resolve any situation. And as my mother had said that um, you can do anything you want, and, you know, she was surprised as she saw what I did accomplish. She said, oh, you can do a lot with a French degree. But um, <laughs> when I was younger, I tended to undersell and undervalue what my impact could be. And I thought that I had to work harder than others because I saw others as, you know, more adept and more impactful. And, um, you know, hard work's good preparation, though, for building confidence. So now, based on that, I know that I can uh, pretty much face any situation. And often when something happens, I'll just say, hey, this is the person that was in the tsunami. And, you know, I can survive um, that. I can survive other, you know, difficult situations. For sure. Thanks. Um, so where can people, uh, you know, find you, follow you, uh, follow the good work of uh, Najama? Well, the best place, I think, is our website, www.njamhaa.org. Uh, they could always call our office, 609-838-5488. We're on social media, former Twitter, you know, um, LinkedIn, Instagram. So, you know the the normal ways we're 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 there and um as i said responsive and ready to help thank you so at the think factory we like to ask all of our guests one question which is what keeps you up at night well that's <laughs> i find that question um Interesting because it seems that I, with with all this added work, I I, I sleep like four hours a night, where m much less than when I was doing two doctoral degrees and running a department of full time uh, in my earlier life. But when I so often, I can't say that I'm up at night thinking, but working. But but I what I what keeps me up is that I know life brings unexpected events and and you never know what's next so I tend to stay up and think of contingency plans to remain several steps ahead I'm not worried but my mind's constantly going about what's next what my association should be doing and what I should be doing and then because I'm not sleeping much when I finally do get some sleep I sleep very soundly <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Wentz, for your time today. And be sure to check out our other Women's Roundtable podcast so you can learn how women think big and grow their business. Thanks so much, Dr. Wentz. Thank you, Susan. Thank you.